I mean, it's the bottom rung of the ladder you can get in professional baseball, really. And, uh, you know, I was on a team that that had good camaraderie. We ended up winning our league. And then and then you, you fast forward a year and you get thrown into the situation where like, wow, I don't know anybody. I had never played with any of the guys there. When I went to spring training, all the guys were double A, triple A players. I didn't know any of them. So it was like starting fresh again and, and um, just not being scared, you know, just pitching with your hair on fire and just not caring. It's a bummer for me, like when I see coaches who take the fun out of it for guys because it's supposed to be fun. And if you're having fun, you're going to do well. And if all you can get up in is the, you know, the wins and the losses and I'm a red ass because of, you know, your record. God, I don't want to play for you. And, and coming, coming to the park every day is miserable. So yeah. I'd have a smile on my face, make it enjoyable for whether Derek Lowe, a 15 year veteran in you know, professional baseball or, or, you know, some kid that's uh, fresh out of, you know, middle school coming in his first year in high school. I want it to be a good experience because I want them to come back to the field tomorrow with the same attitude. I want them to come. I want them to be there. I want them to want to work hard for themselves. And, and uh, if you can create that environment, I think you, you get players want that. So that was my approach. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Hey, it's David Burns from Baseball Jobs Overseas, and this is our podcast where myself and Jimmy Jensen interview players and coaches that are traveling the world, whether it be for baseball or softball, and we try to extract information about their experience not only so you could live vicariously through their experience but also so you can gain information in case you're looking to take your career overseas as well we also like to interview influential international baseball and softball people from around the world or anyone that just has a very interesting international baseball or softball story so without further ado let's get on with today's episode dude that was i think my favorite interview to date um, and he's not even a guy that's traveled the world playing baseball. Not, not yet, at least. But yeah, yeah that, was, that was a really good interview. It was cool to kind of hear his insight into just like his career, you know, as a big leaguer, as a big league coach and a big league pitcher. And I mean, I mean, I, I could relate to him a lot just because, you know, not only am I also a pitcher and a coach, but, you know, being from California, like being in that kind of like punk rock, like skate kind of background which we talked about early on in the podcast um but yeah it's a really relatable like just down dude it was was cool to listen to that's just it you know i i feel like i got a little bit of a i'm like a bit of a fanboy or something because like here i'm wearing a shirt you and i have both been listening to skate punk music or whatever you want to call it um from way back in the day like i remember high school listening to pennywise and stuff i didn't i'll be honest i didn't hear of pulley until scott reached out about coaching overseas and then i looked up pulley and then i started listening to him like dude how did i not ever listen to this band before like and now they're like i like them better than all those bands that i uh listen to which i still listen to to today right like well it probably helped that you were on tour with him like through slovenia and italy and got to go backstage and like see all that firsthand but it was really hard not to like get veered off and start talking about uh his band and stuff because it is a baseball podcast um and a little bit I know about Scott, like when, when we've met up, like when we met up, he, 
Um, we went and had a couple of beer um, in Germany when he was on tour here this summer and got to know him more there. And when he starts talking baseball, he just gets fired up. He's pa so passionate about it. And you could yeah. just, so I know like he does so many interviews about punk rock and his band and he doesn't do many baseball interviews. So I knew like, all right, we need to stick to the script and talk more baseball, which is what we did, even though we started talking about yeah. sporting. And it's really cool to hear some of his like, you know, experiences as a big leaguer and, you know, being a young kid, you know, cause he's drafted out of high school, uh, you know, got picked up to the major leagues, like from single a, one of the few guys to do that. So he's like a boy among like all of these like established big leaguers getting the face, Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds. Like it's crazy to hear his insights into like a background like that. Yeah. And especially he touched so much on the mental side of it. His like how, like, I don't want to give away too much of the podcast. Like we want to save it for that. But like, his success was a lot due to his mental approach as opposed to his stuff. Of course he had good stuff. Otherwise he never would have made it, but he attributes a lot of his stuff to a mental approach that he had. And so we'll, we'll let him tell you about that. Everybody about that. But like his coaching career too, was just amazing to hear all those stories and his approach to coaching big leaguers, like how he made it up through the system to the MLB. And then in more recent years, like coaching younger guys, like coaching high school and college guys. So yeah, I'm really excited to see him as an international coach and the impact that he can have on an international program. Um, I mean, you know, he's a free agent now, but I don't think he will be for long after, after this podcast comes out. Yeah. Either way, like uh, yeah. when I was listening to him, I'm like, oh man, like everything he was saying, I'm like, he would fit perfect overseas. So yeah, that was a fun podcast. I definitely have to say that one of my favorites for sure. Cool. Well, let's don't delay it any longer. Yeah. Let's get right into it now. So Do here's it. our interview with Scott Radinsky. First off, Scott, like I want to, I want to hear a little bit about your tour. You just got back from tour, right? How, how was that? Cause I mean, that's fresh. And where, where were you at? Yeah, technically I'm still on tour. Um, but yeah, all over Europe, um, we played in the Netherlands, Belgium, Italy, we make our rounds over there. And then, uh, and then I stayed for a little while, uh, for like a vacation. And now we're playing our last show here in Winnipeg before we head to Australia next month. Yeah, I saw that, that you're going to Australia. Well, I remember you telling me about that. And, uh, that's been a while since you've been in Australia, like 20 years or something, man. That's what they tell me. Yeah, it's been 20 years. Um, well, anyway, Jimmy, you, you you have a lot in common with Jimmy. Okay. Jimmy's, Jimmy's a Cali boy. He's a pitcher. He's a, he's a skater. Yeah, <laughs> I was. And, and he was a skater and, and was a pitcher. <laughs> and, sure, uh, yeah, toward now, UCL. Now, he's, now yeah. he's a pitching coach, too. So uh, you got a lot in common. So and Jimmy's been with me since 2015 <laughs> on baseball jobs overseas. He's basically my right-hand man or these days it's more the other way around i'm his right-hand man and um good dude lives here in salzburg with me um not with me but in salzburg and um yeah you guys uh i think you guys uh will will, will be able to go on a little more in depth about the pitching talk uh if we go down that route anyway than i would be able to so yeah. what, what part of cali are you from scott um, I'm from Southern California, a little bit outside of LA, uh, Ventura County area. 
Okay, nice. Nice. Yep. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure the skate culture down there was quite big when you were growing up. <laughs> oh, yeah, it definitely was. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, shit, we were trying to find backyard pools all we could and build our own ramps and everything, you know, growing up. I had a lot of friends that started surfing once we once we were able to drive, so they kind of got out of it, but I never yeah. really got, never got into the water. It was cold. And I, <laughs> I know it's a little more forgiving, but for some reason I stuck to the wood and the concrete. I was the same. I mean, up in NorCal, it was even colder, like going to Santa Cruz, but Santa Cruz also had like the best skate park. They built this, uh, it had a full pipe and it was like painted as like a wave too. And it was, oh, cool. it was really cool, but I was more into like the street skating. So like I didn't have like all my friends didn't have like, you know, pools and stuff. So I did, you know, just like cruise through the streets or go to schools or something like that. But yeah, yeah that's I'm at right now is it's called skating without falling. You just cruise around. <laughs> I, I, I gave it a go in Canada there, but I was I was six foot five at like 15 years old. And I just I don't know, I bailed a few times hard and I gave it up pretty quick, but I still kind of had a hung out with the skater crew, but I just didn't hop on the board that often, really. Like a couple big falls. I stuck to snowboarding once once that got popular right around the same time. Yeah. Uh, knows forgiving and you know you're you're smarter than others so you you, uh, you you got out at the right time yeah i did i definitely did I, i've been watching some of these documentaries the big air documentary that was that was nuts like I, some you, some of these guys are just you know i don't know how, how they can do that it's crazy there's a video of this guy danny way jumping the yeah. great wall i don't know if you ever saw that but yeah i did see that i didn't see it but i heard about it yeah yeah, well, actually, you know, that's kind of not even what we were going to go with. This is a baseball podcast, but we, we're I know, but we we have a lot of um, other interests that are right in line with what you do and and uh, musically and everything. But we're, we'll talk mostly about baseball. But while we're on the skating talk it topic, what what was when did the skate lab come about? Like uh, when did you know? Are you co-founder? And how old were you at that time? Were you already playing baseball? And were you already? in a band when you, when you founded that? So, yeah, so I, I was playing baseball. It was, uh, I want to say it was the winter of 95 and we played a show in a town called Fresno, California. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like a warehouse from the outside and we knocked on the door and they let us in. When I walked inside, I looked around like, Holy crap, it's a huge skate park, an indoor skate park. And I hadn't seen anything like that since the late seventies when all the outdoor parks we had down here were, were open and I was too young to go to those, but the skate park whole thing just kind of died. And so we went into this building and it was just this enormous skate park, just wood everywhere, kids having fun. And I remember walking in and thinking, this is awesome. And I don't know, about an hour later, the guy, he started clearing everybody out and he took this big tall ramp and he basically put together a stage in a matter of 30 minutes lights sound, everything and uh, we played a show in this in this venue in this building it was it was awesome so we went back to this hotel and the next morning i woke up and i said to the guy i was rooming with i got to go back to this place and ask this guy some questions so i went back and tried to grill him you know a little bit i think he was a little hesitant didn't want somebody taking his idea and you know capitalizing on it or giving him competition or whatever and um, 
that was it, man. Just kind of started, started getting the ball rolling. And, and I, and I thought, I want to do this. I want to do this for my community. I want to do this for the kids that, you know, are, are in my hometown. And, and it was about a nine month process, you know, going through all the legalities, you know, forming a corporation going through all the city council loops, loopholes, and, you know, just going through all the, all that yeah. crap, all the tape. And, uh, and we finally were able to uh, secure a building, build a park and open up. I want to say it was in the winter of 96. It was November of 96. So really from the first and first, not from January 97 on, we, uh, we held it together for 21 years. It was, uh, it was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. And now it's like the skateboard hall of fame or something like that. Like a lot of memorabilia there, like a museum at that there. Well, I, I technically have nothing to do with the, uh, the hall of fame. Um, uh, when I started the skate lab, I, I brought in a guy, a local guy who he worked at a surf factory and he, he had like a small skateboard collection at the time. And we thought it'd be cool to house the skateboards with the park. And that's kind of what it was when we, in our building, it was uh mostly, it was a skate park. I mean, it was a business. It was a skate park, you know, trying to a for-profit business and we were trying to survive. And, you know, the museum side of it was more of like a nostalgic kind of thing for really parents, you know, or people that were old enough to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, after 21 years, like any business, I mean, you always hear the, the horror stories. I, uh, you know, being involved in baseball and not being there a hundred percent of the time, um, people's hands dug into pockets and, and, you know, mm-hmm. over the years, this money just kind of started going down and down and down and we, we weren't surviving. And I was, funding it myself for a while there to, to kind of keep it going and after a couple of years it was like you know it's not worth it and 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 i knew something was going on and and um ultimately in the end that you know i had to let this guy go and and dig myself out of a few hundred thousand dollars debt that he put me in and um we just parted ways and i told him you go ahead and keep the museum side of it and, and uh, i just i'll keep the skate lab side of it and you just go fuck off and that's kind of the way things went Oh, if he's listening, fuck off from us too. <laughs> well, um, you know, yeah, that's that's the that's you hear that shit all the time. I, I know my yeah. dad has some stories of that yep. too. And, and I and I lived it, so it was uh, an experience I don't recommend to anybody. You know. Yeah. Um. Well, let's let's move on to the baseball side of things, and and, and what I'd like to kind of hear, you know, like we're we're curious about the music side too, but we can talk forever, and and we know you don't have. A, you got to play tonight, right? You're in Winnipeg, Canada on tour. So um, let, I just, what I'm really curious about is the early days, like what came first, baseball or music? Like where obviously you have a, a big a passion for both. Um, so at what point did you kind of discover that, you know, music is a passion of yours and then baseball is a passion and it, did one of those come first? Um. I think baseball definitely came first as a kid, you know, as soon as I was old enough to play on an organized team, I think my parents signed me up and T-ball at six or seven. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, we, we started into music just, you know, this is late seventies, probably when I was eight or nine or 10 years old, we're pulling around with the radio, me and my brother just trying to basically learning, you know, discovering new things. And, and, you know, we found some music and we had this kid across the street from us who was a little older and uh, he could burn us cassette tapes. So he'd make us like Kiss and Ted Nugent and Queen. And I started getting into music and, and I definitely, uh, it, it, it hit home to me a little more than like other stuff did. I think I really 
caught my interest. Um, and I started playing guitar and drums at an early age. And then just evolved into junior high school and, and getting together with some friends and, and starting to play. And, and you know, around, around the same time, baseball really started becoming serious for me, which was, you know, like around high school, I started pitching and, and uh, figuring that uh, I was kind of decent at it. And I, and I maybe it could get me to college is what I was hoping at the time. And, and so uh, baseball definitely came first. Yeah, but I saw that in uh, high school, you like killed it your senior year, had a 0.72 ERA and 180 strikeouts in 100 innings and went 14 and one. Uh, and then, I mean, you got, got a really memory, Jimmy. Yeah. Man, like I, <laughs> Just off the top of his head. Yeah. Right off of Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, I, I, high schools, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. Then, then it looks like you got picked up. I mean, you said you, we're hoping that it would lead you to college, but then you get picked up and drafted like right out of high school there. H- how was that transition? Like, you know, you said you like just start getting into baseball in high school, like seriously. And like, you know, you're pitching and then, you know, you get like, did you have some scouts following you for a while or like talking to you a little bit or how did that, how did that come about? I, I started pitching uh, my junior year in high school. I, I think I threw in a couple of games and that's kind of when it really clicked. And I, and I, and I, like I said, I kind of looked around the rest of the guys in the, on the field and, and, and realized that I fit in for the first time in my life. I thought well, I fit in, I could actually be good. And then uh, my senior year. Yeah. I mean, things just took off and just kind of out of nowhere. Um, I went from pitching two games, my junior year, no games, my sophomore year to whatever I threw my senior year and, and being like, you know, our, our number one guy on a really good high school team and, you know, this is pre-internet days. And, and, you know, I think Southern California is kind of a hotbed. And if, For if sure. You're good, if you're good, they're going to find you. And, um, you know, word must have got out two or three games into the season because as the season progressed, it was, it was kind of cool. Like, uh, it, it was cool and it was embarrassing at the same time because I'm not a big fan of, like, the attention or, or uh, mm. it's just a thing. I'm a under the radar kind of kind of guy. And, and so on the days that I would pitch, we had these bleachers behind our field. There would be, I don't know, 12 or 15 of these little white dots. And I didn't know what they were. And I remember coming into the, to the dugout and saying to my coach, man, there's all these guys underneath the seat trying to be like, you know, they're trying to be like low key and, 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 and hide themselves. And they stick their little radar gun out between the seats (laughs) you know, I said, there's all these little white things back there. And he kind of smiled. He goes, well, those are radar guns. He goes, don't try to throw too hard. So of course, you know, the next thing I go out there and I'm winging shit to the backstop, trying to throw it as hard as I can, you know, I want to throw a hundred. Yeah. And, um, and I walked my, my normal three, four guys in the inning, uh, and then, you know, try to strike out the side. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way it progressed. And then, you know, as, as the season went on, I, I thought, man, I, I might have a chance to go to college. And, and do this in college. And, and I asked my coach, I said, what, what kind of classes do I really need to have, you know, to, to line myself up to some of these schools that were showing some interest at the time. And um, I, I was lacking like in the foreign language and some of the advanced, you know, I, I had all basic general classes. So he said to me, you know, yeah, you, you'll have a good chance of going on and playing, uh, playing in college. And, you know, some of the private schools might be able to work some things, maybe go to a junior college route and then he said, you know, I'm kind of getting uh, an impression that you might have a chance to get drafted. And this was a time when 
nobody reached out to the player or the player's parent. We didn't have I didn't have an advisor or any of that stuff. They went through the high school coach. And he basically acted as an agent, I would say, from probably about the middle of my senior year throughout the rest of the season there. And, um, you know, he would tell the guys when I was pitching. He would, you know, just give all the information on me and where I was, what, what his feeling was on whether or not I was signable. And uh, once he said that to me that I had to get drafted inside my, my mind, I never thought about college ever again. Uh, now, I played the game and I told the college people that I was interested in going to school. And I told, you know, when I did start talking to professionals, like the, the Major League Scouting Bureau, I, I, I told them that I did have interest in going to school and I, and I wanted to play that, you know, that leverage, you know, that game. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. Yeah. Once once the, the word professional entered or, you know, came out of his mouth, <clears throat> I mean, college went out the door. I, I gave up on that that <clears throat> idea. Nice. The baseball thing happened real quick then, because then you, you, you know, you signed with the White Sox. Um, and I guess it was within two years you were in the show. You went straight from from single A to to the MLB about two years later, I think, if, if I remember right. Yeah, I, I, I signed. I graduated on a Friday. I think it was June 7th. And then June 8th, I was on the plane to Florida to go play rookie ball. And um I was in rookie ball for three years. I couldn't get out of the lowest level of professional baseball. And that's when bringing back what you were talking about earlier about something to fall back on. I, I, I started like thoughts of my, were going through my head. Like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to job. I'm, I'm going nowhere here. All these guys, every year in rookie ball guys that just keep leaving. And I kept returning and I kept returning mm-hmm. and I kept returning. And, and um, I don't know if it, I wasn't good or, or if it just wasn't my time. You know, and, and it's one thing, you know, I, I always try to tell a lot of a lot of coaches, you know, when it comes to having patience with players is you just never know when that light bulb's going to go on. And fortunately for me, I was in an organization that had some patience and they allowed me to play that fourth year. Basically, they sent me to a low A ball team. And I think it was like it was sheer get off the pot time. You was three years in rookie ball. You got to get to like a, a, a level where you're playing with kids your same age basically is what it was and and um just like my senior year in high school all of a sudden boom the light switch went on and and uh they stuck me in the bullpen as a reliever i think i got 30 days and just took fire and and did what i i i wanted to be able to do the previous three years but just couldn't wasn't capable for whatever reason i don't know why it just excuse me like i said it just it just clicked and then uh so I spent that season in A-ball, and then things just accelerated after that. I went to spring training, made the team, and then was in the big league for the rest of my, my career. So it was uh, it was a lot to do with the patience they had. I don't know if I would get that opportunity in, in today's era um, to survive for three years, four years in rookie ball, just you know throwing 88, waiting for the, uh, waiting for the light to, to turn on. But I mean, like you didn't even just like make it to the bigs. It looked like you had a like a really successful career there too. I, I mean, you were like among the voters and like in the voting for rookie of the year. And then your following two seasons, I mean, it looks like you had a two point two two point oh two ERA, then a two seven three like sub three ERA in the big leagues with a significant number of innings. Like that's 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 an accomplishment to be like really proud of. That's, that's awesome. Especially, you know, like getting drafted out of 
high school, like you said, super young, one of the youngest players and one of the very few players to, you know, go from single A ball all the way up and make that jump and instantly be able to make an impact. Super lucky, super grateful, <laughs> uh, super thankful, um, you know, to have the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've spent a lot of time in the bullpen, and I think the bullpen's the biggest revolving door on a baseball team. There's always guys coming and going. It's that 25th man revolving door. Hey, this guy threw four innings last night. We need to bring someone up tomorrow. He's got options. Send them out. And You know, it's that whole game of business. And and um, guys come and go all the time. And, and, yes, getting to the big leagues is a serious accomplishment, and, and there's only a handful of few that that get the opportunity to, to, to do that. Um but I, I think, you know, taking pride in surviving at the major league level is is mm-hmm. is that that to me is what I'm most proud of is, is, yes, getting the opportunity and working my butt off to get there. And but more than anything was the ability to stay there. And and that's that's the hard thing to do, because there's a lot of guys that come. I sat in the bullpen for years with guys. We'd get a guy up here for a week and he was great. But just mentally, just they don't have that capacity to. To, to just kind of keep things in check. Uh, a lot of people get freaked out. You know, they just get freaked out with that third level on a stadium. You know, mm. you come from a AAA field, and then all of a sudden, it's something something about the lights going on that just scares some guys. And um, I was in a good situation. I had good coaches. I had good teammates. I was the youngest guy by far. I think I was twenty or twenty-one. Just turned twenty-one. And I, I think the average age of my team at the time was probably 30. So all the guys were married, had kids. And instead of, you know, the old school hazing really be hard on me, they took me in. And I was a good I was a good teammate. You know, they had no reason to, to be assholes to me because I was a good guy. I I, I played the game. I, 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 I was their caddy. You want a beer? I'll get you a beer. You want a coke? I'll get you a coke. Whatever. <laughs> I was, there to, I was there to accommodate, you know, and, and I think they appreciated that and respected the fact that um, I knew my place on the team and I knew my place in the game. But they, uh, you know, about midway through the year, I really noticed that they really started to, like, protect me. Yeah. And uh, and the coaches did the same, too. And, and they, they always put me in situations to succeed and to, to, to continually, constantly have confidence. And, and I think I drew, I drew so many of my... Uh, the things about my style of coaching were pulled from those early on years of coaches that just had good feel, knew how to bring players along, knew how to develop, and and that's the key, you know. Sorry about my love. No, no, it's great. We love hearing everything. You can, yeah. you, can, you can just keep talking, and we'd be so happy <laughs> to sit here and drink beer because um, these are good stories. Um, yeah, while, while you were talking there, too, I'm thinking, like, I want to know what is like, how do you, how would you describe yourself as a pitcher back then? Like what made you so effective? Uh, I think for me it was uh granted we're going pre-internet era and really kind of pre-cable TV era. So I wasn't really in tune with much other than the two local teams in my, my town. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a lot of information on teams on the East Coast, Midwest. And, and uh, so I did have knowledge for the game. And I knew who the, the the star players were, you know, at the time. Everybody does. But I wasn't intimidated or in awe of like, oh, wow. And granted, I came from riding buses with 25 guys, and we were tight and low able. It's the 
I mean, it's the bottom rung of the ladder you can get in professional baseball, really. And, uh, you know, I was on a team that that had good camaraderie. We ended up winning our league. And then and then you, you fast forward a year and you get thrown into the situation where like, wow, I don't know anybody. I had never played with any of the guys there. When I went to spring training, all the guys were double A, triple A players. I didn't know any of them. So it was like starting fresh again and, and um, just not being scared, you know, just pitching with your hair on fire and just not caring. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but there's a, there's a lot to that, you know, and I think the more you start to like overanalyze and overthink things and, you know, it, it just usually spirals down. There's nothing good that comes out of it. And, and when you can just kind of reflect back, take a step back and say, you know, as corny as cliche as it sounds, it's just a game and, and who gives a shit. And like I said, I think the confidence that was instilled by the coaches, like if I did have a bad game, I could come in and face a guy and walk him on four pitches and they'd come take me out after one batter. But when he'd come get the ball, he'd tell me, get your ass ready for tomorrow night. And sure in hell, he'd pitch me the next night. He'd find a situation to get me in there because he wanted me to end on a good note. And, and if I had a good game the next night, I might not pitch for five more days. But they just had a way of of making me feel confident, which which helped me allowed me to, to to just kind of be carefree. And I cared, but I didn't care if that makes sense. Yeah, makes so much sense. Like you know, they you know they say I don't know. Some people will say the game's any eighty percent mental. You know, um, and we we have a lot of our members that come come through that that made it up to double AA, A, triple A, or whatever. Didn't didn't get that opportunity to play in the in in the show. Um, and some of them were like, are kind of burnt out on baseball when their career ended. And then, and then they recaught the fire, like, okay, I want to go play again. And they come to us like, you know, but we always use, uh, Eric Sikula who made it up to triple a with the Jays. And he came to us and he, we ended up sending him to like a state league in Australia after he'd been out of the game for, for almost a year. And he, he, he was honest. He said he was just kind of burnt out with the politics in the game and the business side of the game. And then he's playing in this like provincial league in Australia where guys have tattoos of the logo of their team and they're playing for the love of the game and drinking beers after. And he said it was just so refreshing. And yeah. it sounds to me like you were able to kind of avoid all that and stay in the right mental mental frame while you were up there and just enjoy playing baseball and love playing baseball. Does that sound pretty, pretty close? A hundred percent accurate. Um, I was, uh, I was into it. I just didn't follow it. I didn't, I didn't watch sports center. I didn't see the highlights. I didn't read the paper the next day or the clips they'd have in the locker room. Um, I just kind of, I went and did my thing all day. I was 21 years old. I had a mountain bike. I didn't even drive. And I rode around the city of Chicago. One of the guys who lived in my building would give me a ride to the field. And I just, I just didn't care. I was having a blast. It was a great time. And, and, um, like I said, it was the, it was the, 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 where you're at, the people you're with, the situation they create, you know, the environment that was there. And, and, um, and I, and I'm so thankful for that because I've been a coach on teams that, I've kind of looked around and said, there's no way in hell I would have ever survived if this would have been yeah. you know, my first week in big leagues because the business is different now. I don't think that, you know, there, there's not as much patience. Um, and, and, you know, I think the whole protection, 
controlling of players, roster years, and everything and whatnot it, it, you know, is a big is a big play in, in how they utilize guys and how they bring them to the big leagues. And and uh, there's a lot of there's I'm sure there was a lot of politics back then. I just wasn't aware. Um, but I got to believe there's more politics now. You know, it's mm. it's definitely it's always been a business. But I think now there's a lot. And there were smart guys back then too, but they were baseball people. Now I think it's baseball people that are just really smart that probably didn't play, and they don't have that feel. They don't have that understanding. You know, uh, you know, I guys, I, I love the, I love the catcher, and I'm sure Jimmy, you can appreciate this. The guy who played first base or catches, and he's in the dugout and he's bitching at the pitcher for throwing balls. Well, I don't think any pitcher is out there on the mound trying to throw <laughs> balls. You know, and and and. Uh, you know, unless you've done it, unless you've towed the rubber and stared down a hitter 60 feet away, unless you stood in the batter's box and, you know, tried to time up 98, I don't think you're really in a position to comment on it, you know? And if you have, you understand that it's not that easy. And and I, and I love addressing a team with my first comments always being, I'll never forget how hard it is to play the game because mm-hmm. it's not easy and it's yeah. hard. And sometimes, you know, as coaches, we sit on the side and we think it's easy, but you forget it's not, you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is really like, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really mental. And like, especially, you know, when you're on the mound going up against a hitter, especially if it, you know, if it's a supposedly a really good hitter, um, just being able to kind of tune that out and be able to just like really focus on your goal. And like, you know, if he hits a home run, he hits a home run, but like, I'm going to go after you just like I would anyone else. And I'm going to attack you with the best I got that day. Doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, if I'm facing Miguel Cabrera or if I'm facing, you know, Dave Burns, Dave Burns. <laughs> but no, it, you he said about Cabrera. that. Jimmy had that mental approach. He had the right mindset too. Well, he still does. He's just injured right now, but he'll be back. <laughs> um, but you know, I he pl- I played with Jimmy and on the same team and in Atnang here, and I mean, he just didn't let anything phase him, and he would just like give me the ball. You know, like he just was a gamer. And now I see like our young guys try to emulate him, like Sebastian, the young kid. He's only only fourteen. The kid's just killing it. And on the week, this, this past weekend, like he's playing against grown men uh, on the second team, and he just he's he just sho- he's just shoving right. And but when he started, you know, kind of losing control a bit, or like they got they strung together a few hits, he was just cool as a cucumber. Didn't get rattled. Didn't nothing. And I was just like, how's this kid? Like I've never seen a fourteen year old kid. Um, be so professional about his approach to pitching. And it was just, and I, and I thought of it right there. I'm like, that's because Jimmy Jensen's his coach. And he probably looks at Jimmy and like emulates you. I know I'm, I'm, I'm pumping your tires, buddy, but your, your players, your players usually take on the personality of your coaches. And and if you, if you show them that, that sort of, you know, that mentality or that, you know, that, that approach, they're going to pick up on it. I, I can't tell you how many times I've stood in front of 12 pitchers in front of the staff and looked at them and said, you're all the same. You all throw 90 slider from here down. From here up, that's the separator. And and there's an ingredient, and I think I've said this to you before, Dave, there's an ingredient you can't teach. Hmm. And there are guys with tremendous talent. I mean, I've seen plus-plus arms just – couldn't figure a way to make it work and and it's just the game's not for everybody you know and 
You're a good self-evaluator. And the sooner you can recognize that, the sooner you can go on with life because you're wasting everybody's time just because you can throw 97 from three-quarter arm slot uh, and, and occasionally strike out, you know, three guys in the inning. It's like a tease. But mentally, as soon as you, you know, have any kind of hiccup, any kind of walk the run in or give up the game time hit, whatever it is, and you mentally just mm. – you have, you have nothing to offer. You really don't. Yeah. Um. I think the key is identifying those people who can who can do that and survive, because if you can get twenty five of those guys with lesser talent, you'll win more games than guys with better talent. With you know just pussies, basically. You yeah. know. So. I, I'm, I'm seeing it every day while I'm watching my Blue Jays just underperform, and I'm pull, I'm reaching for hair to pull out, and there's none to pull out. But at least I'm not an Oakland Athletics fan. Ah oh, man, you had to throw that in there, huh? <laughs> Uh, Scott, I wanted to ask you, uh, while we're still talking about your playing career, I want to talk about um, your pitching repertoire and like what you threw, what pitches you threw and how you attacked hitters. Uh, Like how hard did you throw first off? Um, Were you one of those like power pitchers that just went after guys like Nolan Ryan, just like I'm going to blow it by you? Or are you more like the Greg Maddox finesse pitcher, you know, hitting spots? You, you know, my development, to be honest, kind of got uh, interrupted with being put up in the big leagues. You know, I pitched a ball, and I probably threw 90% fastballs, and the only breaking balls I ever threw is when the catcher were caught. Really? And then, uh, you guys still there? Yep. Yeah, looks like you cut out okay. just for a sec. Yeah, and then... Uh, and then once I got to the big leagues, it was like, well, there's no more room for development, more time to uh, try to mess around. I gotta, I gotta attack guys. I gotta, I gotta go. For, I gotta get outs. And uh, I probably threw, if I had to guess, I probably threw the first five or six years in the big leagues, ninety percent fastball. Um, I didn't, even, and, it, and it's a shame, you know. Like I didn't. I wish I would have because I think I could have. Uh, could have probably had more of a prominent role at times where, uh, you know, where at being left-handed, they, you know, they, well, you can't face righties. I think my numbers against righties were probably better, um, but I had to get the lefties out. That was a, that was an absolute, um, mm-hmm. the righties were a bonus and I was one of those few lefties that could actually, and they were bringing me in to face lefties without a breaking ball. So, the, yeah. I, you know, my fastball played against righties too. And it was, um, actually, like I said, I think I faced that better, but, it was just straight attack. That's that's that. I was the I was the typical stereotypical uh, high octane adrenaline pitcher. That's super interesting to hear. Get this uh, I could just sit there and listen all day to to. I would just want to just go off and tell us his uh, MLB stories all day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, I would say like I, yeah, I was unfortunately opposite of that you know i mean coming in like through college i was you know mid to upper 80s and as a right-handed pitcher i'd never you know got a sniff and yeah i remember one chance like one day we had a pro day had a bunch of scouts out and uh one of our starting pitchers uh, he had a bunch of scouts coming after him tall six six lefty uh one of my best friends through college and uh, he had a rough start to the day and uh you know then i came into relief and i think the second inning 
And then uh, after the first batter, every single scout packed up their stuff and left just because, you know, I was throwing mid-upper 80s. But then I ended up not allowing a base runner for the rest of the game through a perfect game for eight-plus innings. But yeah. no one of them around to even see that. I'm sure you guys have seen it as much as I've seen it. And, yeah, the guys that they get it up there, you know, they, got, they, can, they, can, they can puff your lip and break your pane of glass. They're, you know, they're, they're sexy. You know, and it's like, those are the guys that keep getting the opportunities, but they're like mental midgets. And and like I said, yeah. I, I'll, I'll take the guy with Greg Maddox pitching the big leagues today. He probably wouldn't get the opportunity to get there, but, mm. but, but if he had a chance to survive, he wouldn't be any different than he was. I mean, he, he'd find ways to get people out. The definition of pitching is changing speeds. Yeah. And, you know, if you have the ability to change speeds and disrupt timing, well, you yeah. probably best one i don't know where the 95 mile an hour fastball and the 92 mile an hour slider have that much separation but okay if that's if that's if 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 we as coaches or we as organizations in baseball say that those are the only guys we're going to lose with we're missing out on a lot of good players man a lot yeah i'd agree yeah and a lot a lot of them come our way and they're got a chip on their shoulder and they're you know like they're they're not happy because they feel like they've been wronged in their career or whatever. And, uh, it's, you know, it's hard. We get it quite a bit and it's, we, we feel for those guys cause they're talented and, and they just didn't get us. You know, you need, the, you need those guys that are pissed with a chip on it. Something to prove you know, guys with hunger, man, there's a fire that has to burn. And if you want to compete and be good, and you're not going to bring a guy just to have an experience and go on vacations on his off days. You want guys that are going to come play, you yeah. know, and, and want to get better and want to help a team and and yeah. um yeah for sure so i've heard you say you busted your ass i assume you were you were you were the workhorse type um just by what i know about you and and so were you were you putting in a lot of work off the field like above and beyond would you say well this was at a time you know when i first got to baseball it was taboo the weight room was off limits like you couldn't even you're oh, a yeah, you're a pitcher, just put on your sleeves and go, don't get a draft in your arm, even though it's 95 out in Florida, you know, and uh, that was the mentality and and run, just run your ass off, run, run for days. There was no like real specific kind of training. And, and I think it was about four or five years in my team. We had in the White Sox, we had one of the first strength coaches in baseball and he was a former decathlete. So we did a lot of, uh, track type exercises we were using heavy balls we used that body blade we were using mm-hmm. medicine balls. we were doing some, doing a lot of balance stuff balance beams stuff that was just not even people the older guys in the team were over in the corner smoking cigarettes just making fun of us you know they weren't gonna they weren't gonna i pitched for 10 years I, I'm, I i don't need any of that but i didn't know any better and to me that's that's kind of what what you had to do so and i felt good it made me feel good. So I, and I saw myself getting stronger and, and I I'd see the results in front of my face. So I bought in I mean, and I, you know, I probably at times they had to pull the reins back and, and uh, slow me down a little bit because I, I'd overdo it. And, um, you know, I'd mountain bike 20 miles during the day, come to the field, do my workout, get in the pool, do all the exercise in there, run on the field and then have to pitch that night. And it just got to the point where it was like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta kind of slow it down a little bit and, and um, save that for the off season. But um, yeah. I mean, I I think that's a huge part. Of day. And you know, um, I don't know if there's any right or wrong or 
or or if there's anything that's like you have to do this, I just think you got to do something. And if you find something that you like and you find something that you feel is, you know, I, I always, as a pitcher, I always relate to it as like an ATM machine, like the money machine. It's At some point, you got to make a deposit if you're going to keep making withdrawals. So if you're putting something back into it and, and you're putting something into your, you know, your, your career, you, you'll, you'll, you'll have longevity and, and you'll have success. You know, and you at least you'll feel good about it. You know, you, you, I know one guy told me, one, one of my coaches, one of my first pitching coaches told me that if, as long as you, if you do everything you can to prepare, good chance you're going to succeed. It's the guys that don't do anything that those are the guys that are always saying, oh, I got screwed or, you know, I got, you know, he didn't give me enough time to get loose. There's always an excuse. And mm-hmm. um, as the, the guys that get after it, they, they get their brains beat in and they're, they're the first ones in the weight room tomorrow, you know, doing something. I can imagine um, like t- today, like the off season, like just the amount of like time and the in- investment in-, in their game that everybody puts in in the off season probably wasn't the same as back then. And here you are, your off season was playing music. So did you even do much in the off season? And maybe that is a secret to success for some, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I work construction. Um, you know, we, we, we'd have band practice a couple times a week and maybe play a show here and there. We didn't do much touring or anything. So music really wasn't ever an issue. It never really, kept me from doing anything baseball wise it was just more the uh lack of knowledge and lack of uh experience in in what to do because there really wasn't it wasn't like you can get on youtube and what can a pitcher do to you know help his velocity they didn't have that back then so so long tossing i, I started long tossing on my own there was nobody telling me to long toss i long tossed with this other guy on my own and then we came up with this thing where we put the we put the screen that you you know you shag baseballs behind you put it out there for the pitcher behind the bucket you know the mm-hmm. big screen and uh, we started we took some tape we made an X or a, a square in the, in the in the thing we'd stand out in center field with a bucket of balls and we put the screen up right behind the mound and we would we would pretend we were coming in getting a ground ball and we would try to throw a line drive and one hop the screen into the box and we would that was fun for us mm-hmm. and we would spend an hour doing this well my son does this now and they call them pull downs well okay well i was doing pull downs in 89 then and no one told us what we were doing but it was shit you had to kind of figure out on your own really i mean there was instruction but it wasn't like specific mm-hmm. and, and write up a program for a reliever write up a program for a starter you can individualize things because we have so much uh knowledge and, and 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 scientific data that shows what works and what doesn't work and what causes stress what doesn't cause stress not not only that but when to incorporate that during your your season during your off season and you know we were just kind of going for it blindly and and i i just i rode my mountain bike because I, I wasn't a big fan of running so i would just go out and ride miles all day and then i'd throw against the wall and that's kind of what i did and i had a surgical tubing that a guy gave me and said tie this to your doorknob and, and do these exercises. That's kind of what it was. Yeah. You know? And as the years went on, um, things became a little more, I don't know if the right words progressive, but um, things were being introduced to us. And there was things I didn't like, things I did like. And um, like I said, as long as you got something, and you can put something back into that 
back into that bank account, you can keep making deposits or keep making withdrawals. And that's that was kind of my mentality. Simple, very simple mentality. And I think that's uh, another thing lacking in today's game is is keeping things simple. Nice. I'd like to I hear. Want, sorry, go ahead. I, uh, I I want to move on to the coaching the coaching side of things. In the next. I was just about to talk about the same thing. I want to make that transition, but before we do, I wanted to ask you like some of the some hitters that you faced uh, throughout your pitching career. Because I mean, as a lefty specialist, as you mentioned, I'm curious. You know, like some big names that you might have gone against, you know, lefty hitters that I'm, that come to mind might be like, you know, Barry Bonds or, you know, like Griffey Jr. Um, yeah, all those guys. Yeah. Like that. Those guys in the eighth inning with the tying run on second base, um, you know, George Brett, Don Mattingly, Wade Boggs, Mike Greenwell, Mo Vaughn, Barry Bonds, you know, Mike Olerud, John Olerud, I'm sorry. John. You name it. Tony yeah. Gwynn. I mean, it's, and, and, and maybe I'm biased, but who's the best hitter in every lineup? For the most part, most of the time, my opinion, best hitters are the left-handers. Who's the best hitter for the Angels right now? I mean, Mike Trout's awesome, but I'd go with Shohei. Yeah. You know, start going around the league, and you start looking at all the three, four, five guys. Are not all of them, but a lot of the key hitters in the lineup are left-handed. So those were those were uh those were big outs to get and i didn't realize it at the time and it's probably a good thing yeah you know, a good thing i didn't know i was facing kurt gibson with the you know tying run on second base and or or you know whatever griffin or something it, it, it played to my advantage it benefit for me for not caring or really getting concerned i struck out keith hernandez i guess he was a guy who didn't punch out a lot and yeah and i struck him and bill buckner played for the indians mm-hmm. or no Fucking play for the Red Sox, but either way, I, I and my coaches at the time were were still young enough to where they had played with them or against them when they were playing. And the next day in batting practice, you know, as we're coming in, picking up the balls, you know, they they, hey, who's this guy, man? What the hell was that? He threw me last night, and you know, they kind of be asking questions, basically saying hello to me. Hey, you struck me out last night. Nice job, kid. Don't do it again. And. Uh, <laughs> Um, I didn't know. Like I said, I, I I knew, but I only knew from from TV or from reading about them in a you know on a magazine. I didn't I didn't know who they were. I didn't I didn't know how they were hitting in that three game stretch or that week. I didn't know who was hot and who wasn't. I just faced I faced a lot of good hitters and um, and and like I said, in my opinion, the left handers were usually the better in a lineup. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably know if I saw Ken Griffey walk to the plate. I'd be like, all right, this guy. I mean, I don't know him, but look at this guy. <laughs> but I, I found a stat online. You struck him out seven out of 16 times you faced him. So you owned Ken Griffey Jr. That's pretty that's a that's a pretty good little uh whatever you want to call it. Uh chip in the help you. Yeah. Not he, probably to... didn't, he probably didn't all well off me. That's that's probably all. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> yeah. But like you mentioned, I mean, like, it probably was kind of helpful that, you know, you didn't necessarily, you know, you weren't watching guys on YouTube. And it's kind of that, like, I remember one of the things my junior college coach taught me that, like, really stuck with me was, you know, when you're going up against someone, it's like nameless faces. Doesn't matter who you're going up against. You know, like, whether it's Ken Griffey Jr. or Barry Bonds or David Burns, you know, like, doesn't matter. Like, you just got to execute your pitches 
you know, trust your defense is going to do their job behind you, and then you'll be successful. And it looks like you had that mentality, like intentional or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, and and, and that lack of fear and, and the ability yeah. to throw the plate and just continually pound the strike zone relentlessly. I mean, to me, it wasn't a count. Every count was uh-oh, and I'm yeah. just going to strike you out on the first pitch, and I just kept going at you hard. And and I know, you know, hitters after a while, they're going to start swinging early when they know you're in the zone and they know you're coming at them, and, and you know, they know they're going to get fastballs, so they're they're going to take three champions instead of waiting for a couple to go by and then swing at one. And yeah. um, when you can throw the ball over the plate and you're in the strike zone continuously, you're going to get guys in swing mode. Yeah. And then the, and once they chase, then you got to know. Then you then you know how to like that, that's pitching. You know how to pitch. You know how to knowing when to throw a ball is the key to pitching. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm I'd like to hear. I I think just from this interview alone, we could we could tell why you became a successful coach post playing career as well. Um, and I'd I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, more about your coaching style, your coaching philosophy. I have a feeling a lot of it's just talking to guys like you're talking to us and the mental side of the game and, and, and approach and approaching the game that way. Um, so like you, where you were in the, you were in the minors for a while with the Indians and then, and then eventually got the call up, I think like in 2000, like uh, later 2008 or nine um, as, as a bullpen coach with the Indians. I think that was your first, first show uh, time in the, in, MLB as a as a pitching coach, maybe you could tell us a little bit about like just yeah your your approach um, and, and why you were in high demand and worked your way up and and how and the success you found there. Well, I think it starts number one with communication, and um, you know as as a pitcher, you probably very well know we're, we're kind of like the uh, like the stepchilds on the team. Everybody's always yeah pitchers not athletes this and that. You're your own team within a team, basically. You're not in the dugout, you know, or the, the starters that are in the that are part of the game. They're starting or doing something. They're they're just not part of the team. You are, but you're not. And so, uh, I think being that guy that that's responsible for the, for that staff and, and having the communication and making them feel comfortable, uh, having the ability to sit side of manager, and 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 if he has no pitching experience, stress to him the importance. It's not coddling, but it's it's establishing a relationship. You know, um, as as a you know as a manager, you might come out and hand a guy a ball on the mound and tell him to go get him. And three batters later, you're coming taking the ball, telling him nice job. And that's the extent of your communication for the day. So so me being in a position as a as a pitching guy to just dive in with those pitchers and, and dedicate 100 percent of my time to them. And I know everything about pitchers, uh, the guys in my staff. I know everything about them before I know what they throw. I know what their wife's name is, what kind of car they drive, where they live, where they went to school, what their kids' names are, what their dogs are. I know everything about them on a personal level. And then we start to talk about baseball. And and I might watch for two or three or four or five outings to, to kind of make a decision and, a, and give a, a proper diagnosis and evaluation to be able to start off a communication with a guy when it comes to the teaching side of it. There's so many guys just want to jump down your throat after three pitches. Hey, 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 get going. You arm this, that. Dude, you got to watch me throw. You got to watch me compete. You got to see how I, how I respond after failure. How do I how do I respond after success? And what's my daily routine like? And, you know, and those are the things that I like to gauge from afar and, and kind of 
watch, give the player a little bit of a uh, little bit of leash mm-hmm. and do their thing. And then I always refer to it like a bowling alley. You know, they put those bumpers on the and the and the and the and the gutter for the little kids. So when they roll the ball down the lane, it'll stay it'll stay inside the lane. And I've been fortunate uh, working with men that were had the ability to to get signed and, and drafted or or signed in professional baseball. So they were all good, even though the guys that weren't good were good. Um, and and as far as coaching them, it's not so. Uh, fundamental there, there's always fundamentals to be coached but it's, it's not like I'm, I'm working from the ground up rehauling a, a delivery it's it's more like keeping them out of the gutter what can we do to take your stuff how can we make jimmy's 88 successful in the big leagues well we're gonna have to put him in situations to, to succeed the major league team's gonna have to take notice and then he's gonna have to get opportunity and when that window opens and he jumps through it there's no time to fail so so if you can get people to believe in what they have and, and, and help them utilize what they have. And then a little fine tuning here and there is usually what it takes. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of where it goes. But my philosophy is definitely get to know the person first before you try to, before you try to coach, because I, that's, that was what I wanted, you know, and, and the guys that got to know me and the guys that, were personal. Those are the guys I trusted. Those are the guys I went to looking for an answer when when I didn't know what it was going to be. And and most of the time, somebody qualified is going to be able to help find some kind of solution to fix your problem. And ninety nine percent of the time, you say eighty percent. I say one hundred and ten percent is mental, um, and just a little bit's physical. Because let's face it, man. If you if you're still playing baseball beyond high school, the physical side of it you got. You might not you might not be as good as you know the superstars, but you got the physical side of it. But what's that ingredient that's missing that that's going to get you over the top? And most of the time, it's you know. Yeah, and I'd imagine that it's even more important as you move up. I mean, especially once you're coaching in the big leagues, then you know you're working with guys who you know might have a bit of an ego. They've made it already, and there it's even more so important to establish that connection, establish that relationship before you can even start to even, you know, like, you know, tinker with mechanics. I mean, you're usually not going to tinker with mechanics with a big leaguer unless it's, you know, something small. I mean, especially with all the technology nowadays. But that kind of leads me to my next question. You know, for you coming up, you know, in the, like in the 80s, playing through the 80s and the 90s, um, without all the technology that we have nowadays uh, and transitioning uh, into a coaching role, Whereas, you know, now, you know, there's Rapsodo, there's TrackMan, there's all these like biometrics that, where you can evaluate pitchers. How have you found that transition um, from, you know, like the old school style of coaching where, you know, your coaches just told you, oh, pitchers shouldn't be in the weight room, just go run and, you know, put on a jacket, make sure your arm stays warm to now where everything's so analyzed, almost overly so to a point where, you know, every single pitch is tracked with spin rate, spin efficiency, uh, vertical, horizontal break. Um, how have you found that kind of transition? And how would you kind of relate the old school and new school tile coaching styles? When I started coaching in 2004 with the Cleveland Indians, I think they were probably the most forward thinking team in baseball. 
Um, they plucked Dee Podesta out of their front office to go start the Moneyball thing in Oakland. Um, so what was going on in Queen Mark Shapiro, who's now in, in Toronto, uh, was was very groundbreaking and early on. And some of the, 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 the tools and resources we were using at the time, we were using this golf uh, simulator thing for, for camera imaging before there was even such a thing as, I mean, long before the Edutronic cameras or Rapsoda or any of that. And we were utilizing a lot of that stuff. I think we were one of the first teams to have, it was called Hawkeye, similar mm-hmm. to TrackMan, um, you know, records, exit velocity, and everything that happens, on, uh, every sort of metric that happens on a field. So uh, it was introduced to me in early, early on, and I'm super grateful for that and super thankful because a lot of it has helped me become a better coach. Mm-hmm. But what I think, and, and I'm not going to sit here and toot my horn because I, I'm just not my, my thing, but I do think that the experience and my personal, my mentality and approach towards, towards going about being a coach was able to blend those two together. Unlike any other coach that I was around um, as a pitching guy, because either one, they were, they were old and experienced and they didn't, they didn't give a shit about anything, any of the technology, or they were too young and had no clue on how to proper field or how to implement it to a player. And, you know, I think like I would get the information from the front office and they would send me this information and they could be another set of eyes and give me some super valuable information, but they stayed hands off. And they said, here, here you go. Is there anything here that can help you? And I'd look and, I, and I'd say, well, there's a couple things here, but it's not the time for me to, I don't want to say anything to him about this right now. He's, he's on a, he's on a good roll. I don't know why things are working, but they are. And I'm not going to try to you know reinvent the wheel here. So, so you kind of let things go until the right time and, and having the feel of when to implement it, I think is huge. And, and that's what, uh, I've enjoyed that as a coach. Uh, my last couple of years, going back to a question David brought up earlier about the politics and players being burnt out. You know, my last couple of years of coaching at the major league level, they distributed every player on the team an iPad. And so I'd come to the field at 1230, 1 o'clock, and there's an iPad in everybody's chair. And it's from their at-bats the night before, from their pitches the night before, and everything's broke down to a team. And, and, it's a lot of great information, but I would, I would inside myself, I would think, God damn, man, I don't want this guy hearing this crap right now. I don't want him seeing this. Allow me to coach these players. Give yeah. me and rolling, but let's have a, let's have it filter down through the proper channel so that, you know, so now I got players out and, you know, we're, they get done stretching and playing catch. And I got a couple pictures. Hey, Rad, come here. Hey, uh, last night it said that this and this and this. I said, what said what? And they're like, oh, well, they sent me this thing on my iPad. Well, I didn't even get that information yet. So I didn't, you know, I'm like left in the dark and I don't have an answer. And I would say something to the front office and they would just basically say, well, if you don't like it, you know, then that's what the players want. Like, well, yeah, but do you really think that every player should receive the same thing? Because in the minor league, we cookie cutter every guy. You know, we treat 70 pickers in a program. We don't have time to individualize a ton of crap. It's like, here's 70 guys. Here's our basic program. You either jump on the bus and compete and do well, or you get off and you go have a life and get a job. Um, you know, the major league level, you can tailor things a little more personal, but not everybody at the major league level has the capacity to, to, to digest 
the information that's out there. And it, I think personally, it does a lot more harm than it does good. And I know it's affected a lot of guys' careers and, it, and a lot of guys, you know, we're in a push button era, man, where, you know, players want instant feedback. And it's like, if I throw a bullpen, the guy behind me has got an iPad and we got, I'm throwing through Rap Soto. I got instant feedback on my slider from pitch to pitch to pitch, which is awesome in a bullpen yeah. set. Yeah. You know, in the middle of the game, <laughs> you know, it's, it should but always that's be. Not, that's not the end all that to, to end all though. It's like, and if, if I only consume myself with the analytical side of it and I forget that there's a human element side to it, well then what, what good am I as a coach? You know, what good, you know, I, I, or a front office guy or as an evaluator. And, and I think that's like one of the most important there was a, there's a classic old coach. His name was Johnny Goral. He played for, for years in the major leagues, coached in the big leagues. And he would always be crusty old cigarette smoker. I'll walk into the shower and I'll, I'll tell you who's going to be a big leaguer. I don't need to see a pitch counter or a crack man. I don't need to see velocity. And there is some truth to that in a sense, you know, and it's like the old school guys, they drafted me. They didn't have numbers to go off of. You know, they, 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 they drafted all the guys before me. They didn't have numbers to go off of. They went off their gut. And nowadays, the front office people will tell you, I don't want to hear about your gut. I want scientific proof. Show me your track man data. No scientific. That was one game. That was, it's a small sample size. And, and I don't know. I mean, that's, just, that's my philosophy. There's a ton of good to it. Trust me. There's a yeah. lot of good information. And it can, it can help out a ton of players. And I think if it's utilized by the proper people, the player will benefit. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I think like with all that data, like, I mean, it's super cool that you can like, you know, measure the spin of a ball. So that way, you know, you can maximize your amount of break or anything like that. But some players just, I mean, even out here in Austria, they get too bought up in the, in the numbers rather than just learning how to compete. And regardless of what my spin rate is, if my spin rate shit and I can get a guy out, I don't care. My goal is to get guys out. It's not to make sure that my spin rate is as high as possible or as low as possible. And it's hundred percent efficiency. The goal is to get at the end of the day is to get guys out. And that's all, all that right. matters. Like, yep. That's it. That's win right. games, help your team win, throw strikes, get guys out. And if you can use the technology as a tool to help yourself get guys out, then awesome. But some guys you, you, do get too bought up in. You hear the expression a lot, like keep it simple. It's just yeah. a game. Don't forget it's just a game. Well, why do we forget that? Yeah. You know, why do we forget that at times? Why do we get so consumed with the information? And, and uh, you know, sometimes, I, I, like I said, like, you know, we're, we're both in agreement, obviously, but I, I think it sometimes does more harm than good. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear, uh, I know, like, in, in more recent years, you've been coaching, um, you know, helping out a friend and coaching at the high school level. I believe, and also summer collegiate and your son on the team. Um, so that's kind of a, a whole different type of coaching. So I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear like how, how, how your coaching style has kind of maybe changed or your approach to coaching younger kids um, to the collegiate level and these kids that are, you know, trying to make it somewhere. Um, just wanted to hear maybe just touch on that a little bit about your approach there and how that might have might differ from from when you were you know uh in in with uh, your professional days well you, you know professional or amateur for me uh, my investment is for the player i i go to the field 
for a player. And maybe I'll have some professional teams that, that were paying me money that will listen to this and say, well, no wonder we fired them. But uh, I, for me, it wasn't about the win or the loss. It was about the player and about helping the player development develop and succeed. You know, at the major league level, you're, you are trying to win and you want to compete and you might not have the patience and the time to bring someone along and the, the opportunity to let them fail. Um, but for me, it's always been about the play. So I've always had patience and uh, it's just a different kind of patience. You know, I, I haven't told a player that, Hey, if the ball's hit to the right side, you know, your first instinct's got to be to cover first. Well, at the high school level, you have to remind them continuously that those are things, you know, uh, you got to come set before you deliver a pitch to the, to the plate. Little dumb things that I don't think are, uh, I guess I took for granted at professional baseball because guys come in knowing that stuff. They know how to, they know what a slide step is. They know how to, when you speak to them, they understand the, the, the verbiage, um, you know, and the high school kids are basically they're playing for the first time in their life. They're playing on an organized team. That's not a travel team or a daddy ball team. So it's like, it's new to them and it's different. It's different. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sure for a high school kid playing on a high school team is kind of professional, you know, um, the college guys are awesome. That was my first experience with that. And, and uh, I was really surprised with how many guys were really had the talent they had and, and how good they were and and, um, and mature they were. And, and, and to see the, the, the step from high school to college, I understand why the filter becomes smaller and the, the door becomes narrower and not so many guys move on past high school because it, 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 it's another it's another level of, of, of baseball. And, you know, I don't, I guess it depends on what college you go to, but even at the, the junior colleges around, I think it's pretty serious still, you know, and, and, and taken seriously. And, and um, it's a bummer for me. Like when I see coaches who take the fun out of it for guys, because it's supposed to be fun. And if you're having fun, you're going to do well. And if all you can caught up in is the, you know, the wins and the losses and I'm a red ass because of, you know, your record, God, I don't want to play for you. And, and coming coming to the park every day is miserable. So yeah. I try to have a smile on my face, make it enjoyable for whether Derek Lowe, a 15-year veteran in you know professional baseball, or or you know, some kid that's uh, fresh out of you know middle school coming in his first year in high school. I want it to be a good experience because I want them to come back to the field tomorrow with the same attitude. I want them to come. I want them to be there. I want them to want to work hard for themselves. And, and uh, if you can create that environment, I think you, you get players on that. So that was my approach. Awesome. hundred percent. My dad's going to love this. <laughs> this is 100% like his mentality and yeah. And, yeah. and how I am because through him, um, I, I would like to before uh, we're, we've been doing this for a while here, so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but we, we could, we could do this forever, but um, yeah, I wanted to, ask you a couple more questions about coaching and then we're going to do a quick rapid fire and then we're done. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, is there like a success story at the, at the major league level, like a name of somebody that you helped out or that you had a hand in figuring some stuff out? Um, you know, like, yeah, we just want to hear more MLB stories, <laughs> but from a coaching standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I got a lot. Um, I was fortunate to come up 
I, I spent a year in A ball, double A, and then I went to triple A with the Indians three years in a row. So I, I took a lot of the guys with me. And then we all went to the big leagues together. So to see their you know, their progress and their development at every level, and every level is a different learning process. We, you know, we're, we're up in the game just a little bit more, all the way down to, you know, we get to the big league level and it's like we're sitting there having a pregame meeting and I'm I'm having a pregame meeting with a guy that I had in A ball five years ago and we're getting ready to go face a major league lineup and we're, and, you know, we're sitting down there with the lineup with the catcher and we're, we're going over the, you know, the attack plan first time, second time, third time through. And, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, a sense of gratitude. That's a feeling of gratification for sure. Um, there's one guy that that definitely stands out. He was a reliever with the Mets. He was a reliever with the Indians. His name was Joe Smith. He was a side armor. Um, I think he pitched for about 15 years in the big league. And he he went to Rice University, and he was dominant. And he had like this delivery where he stood straight up, and then he went from this position into a, you know a hunched over sidearm position and came at you like almost knuckles dragging the ground. And he got to the big leagues. And of course, you know, the first day he got to the big leagues, their pitching coach said, and you can't pitch like that here. We're going to have to change you. Never saw him throw a game. Saw him throw. This is during catch game uh, before BP even started. So the kid struggles with the Mets for, I don't know, six months, seven months, goes to spring training the next year. They make a trade. They send him to the Indians. So I'm watching this guy pitch. I'm the bullpen coach. It's my first year and he's in the bullpen and, of course, like I said, I built a relationship with him now to where I can joke with him and, you know, talk shit with him. And and uh, he's doing his thing for the first couple months of the season. And we're in Cincinnati and we're in the bullpen. And it's hot as hell. I just remember it being hot as hell. And we were all in this, like, grounds crew room staying cool. And when the phone would ring, I'd go out and get it and I'd tell someone they'd have to warm up. So me and him got in this conversation and I, I basically called him out and I said, no, you're not a sidearm guy. You're, you you claim to be a sidearm guy, but why do you throw like this? I said, when I watch you play catch, you do this and this and this. But then when you get in the game, you do something totally different. And he said, well, when I was with the Mets and started giving me that whole story, I said, well, are you with the Mets anymore? No. Is it your career or is it Rick Peterson's career? He was the pitching coach. He's like, well, it's mine. It's like, well, God damn it. Let's, let's do what you want to do, man. If, Cause I said, you're pitching your way out of the league right now. I said, and if you want to stay here, don't you, or if you want to, if you, if you're going to leave, don't you want to at least leave your way? Cause every way, everything he was describing to me about this delivery, he hated. So I said, show me what you used to do. So he gets on the rubber, comes set, separates nice, comes, delivers the, you know, doesn't throw a pitch, but kind of brings his arm through and I go, what was wrong with that? He goes, I don't know. I go, that was fucking awesome. I go, can you do that again? And he did it again. And then he did it again. I said, I hope you pitch today. And he looked at me like, God, I hope not. I'm, I'm fucked up. I go, no, you're not. Well, he did pitch that day. And I said, when he started warming up for the game, I was like, just do it, man. What do you got to lose? It's literally, you're on your way of pitching yourself off this team. So what do you got to lose? This guy goes on to have... 10 of the best years of his career after this, he goes out and pitches that game, goes out and throws his inning. I think he threw 13 pitches and punched out two guys. He stood on the top step of the dugout, looked out to the bullpen, was waving his hat at me, you know, kind of doing this. Like he was pumped. He was so pumped. I come in after the game, gives me this big hug. And he's like, I'm never going to do that shit again. I'm, that's the way I'm pitching from now on. I don't know why I listen to them. It's like, well, you're a dumb <laughs> young impressionable baseball player you wanted to stay in the big leagues and this yeah. guy told you that's what you had to do and i said ironically enough 
here's another guy telling you what you got to do to stay here because that shit ain't working. So it was, that was probably one of the most gratifying moments in, in all of my coaching career. Cause it was, I didn't do anything. All he did was go back to what he used to do. It was yeah. simple. It wasn't yeah. like, and he went on to have this unbelievable success. And then of course, People were commenting on, wow, what a great transition. What a that's a great thing. No, man, this is have you guys watched film of what this guy used to throw like? Because that's what he, that's how they that's how he was when they drafted him. Mm-hmm. Why change him? And um it worked out good for him. And and uh, and I was really happy for him and I was proud of him to 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 take the uh the attitude into the game that he hadn't used. He hadn't, you know, he'd probably thrown in 50 some odd games the previous year and a half, and he came to our team and he and, and and he just went for it. And he, what do I got to lose, man? Fuck it. And he went out there. It always works. It always works. You know, and, and uh, I, I believe that when you when you kind of, when you look like shit at the plate and you got no chance mentally, you know, this guy owns me. And you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to take a rip. And you probably barrel the ball into the right center gap. You know what I mean? Or or you, you stand off the mound and you're like, I'm not going to try to aim it anymore. I'm, I'm tired of walking, guys. Fuck it. I'm just going to throw it as hard as I can down the middle. The next thing you know, you get a swing and a miss, or you get a pop-up, and the inning's over. You always have to go back to that. It's just a game. It's just competition. Everything else is out the window when you're on that mound and you're competing or you're in that box. Everything is out the window. It's corny cliche, but it's mano y mano. And uh, you know, that's. I think that's what it takes to succeed. Man, I, I shit. That was a good story. I, I it makes me want to just all right. Tell me another one, but yeah, we can't do that. We this is uh, you know like Scott when we first connected, um, it was prior to the pandemic, and you had reached out about potentially coaching overseas, and so you know there's going to be some some teams overseas listening to that this that might need a coach, um, and I, I'd like to kind of hear what what kind of you know, situation you're looking for and what you, you know, would like to do and why overseas is appealing to you now. And uh, at this point in your life and, and, you know, how that might work in with, with anything else you got going on. Um, well, I mean, I, I think the passion that I have for the game and, and the, the, the want to be around, you know, young men who are, who are hungry and want to learn and, and, uh, you know, I, I said earlier, I think taking on the personality of, of your, your coaches, your manager, um, I feel like I, I've got some experience in the game and, and, and some history to draw on, and I know the game. And I like I like to interact with, with players. I like to coach players, or, or I like to communicate with players, lead players, um, coach when you have to. Um, but I like players to, to – to figure things out on their own because I feel like that's the way we sustain it as a human being is when, when you do something on your own and, and, and you figure it out, I think that's that's how that's when it resonates. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's what I try to try to help players is, is find it on their own and, and like I said, just kind of be the bumper in the bowling alley to keep them out of the gutter. I don't I don't want credit. I don't wanna I don't want to be idiot with my hands, you know, trying to show a guy how to stay upright. I, that's just not my thing. Um Overseas, I, I had an experience with Team USA, and I, and I was really kind of in awe of the, of the wow, there's baseball over here. This is pretty cool. And I, I was in the Netherlands, so it was, you know, it was pretty decent. It was a great experience. I, I, I liked seeing the teams 
uh, across the field with a different country across their chest. I mean, that's just so much newer to me than, you know, Red Sox or Yankees. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just, it's something different. And I've learned the last couple of years at the amateur level. And I love, you know, big league guys. There's nothing better than the coach on a big league team. When the game starts from seven to 10, there's nothing better. That, that competitiveness in that period, the quality of play, the cleanly, the cleanliness of the game, you know, how fe- the, the pace of it, everything's just crisp. And that's, that's, you know, that's a baseball that I, I enjoy. Um, the amateur level, like I mentioned, it, you need more patience. There's, it's a, more of a learning process. It's, uh, you know, there, there are more errors. There are, you can't show your emotions as a coach. You know, you have to, okay, take a little note. And I'll work with this guy tomorrow. And, um, you know, if, and if you have those patients, you hope you see some some light at the end of the tunnel in their development. If they're not getting any better, then you move on to the next guy, right? That's the way that's the cycle of the game. Um, so so the professional side of Europe uh, uh, kind of appealed to me just because there really isn't any organized professional baseball here other than professional baseball in the States. And, and I never really thought much of like uh, independent leagues. Uh, college seemed to be interesting, but I don't know. I, I didn't go to college. So a lot of those schools are looking for guys with degrees and, you know, you kind of get eliminated to a sense unless you're a volunteer. Uh, and, you know, there's not a lot of colleges in my neighborhood, so I'm not going to pack up and move to go you know, to go coach a college somewhere. Um, but the European baseball thing is interesting to me. Uh, the amount of games that play per week. Um, the, I don't want to say newness because it's been going on for what? 100, 120 years. Baseball's been going on in Europe. It's not, it's not something new, but it's not the major league level. Those guys do have fun. You know, my, my small experiences in, in Atnang, players just hanging out, having a beer, it's just relaxed. And, and I think it's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. My style for the game is, is kind of where I'm at. And, and um, I do enjoy, like I said, I do enjoy the professional um, atmosphere or, or culture, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I enjoy the big league level, but uh, not only is it a grind, but uh, it's a business that, that wore on me. And when you see the behind the scenes things uh, day in and day out, you lose a little bit of—I don't want to say love for the game, but you lose love for the business. And if that's the only way I can stay involved, uh, I'd rather not. I'd rather go on somewhere else where people actually uh, um, enjoy it. And uh, it is back down to the ground level, and in, in, in a sense, and and they're trying to do things for the right reasons, not not for the wrong reasons. And that's that's kind of where I'm at in baseball. Baseball's been good to me and my family, and. And I, I know it sounds corny. It's not about giving back or whatnot. It's just, I enjoy it. And you know, if I can help somebody along the way, then I'll, I'll take the opportunities when they come. I think that's the perfect mindset to have for an overseas team. Yeah. Like, and, you know, like with someone with your background, you know, coming in with that mindset of, you know, like might have to be a little more patient out here, um, you know, because, you know, for a lot of guys, you know, they have full-time jobs on the side. They have, you know, might have some young kids with school. Um, yep. And I mean, like, whereas baseball has been around for 100 years plus in, like, Italy and the Netherlands, you know, in a league like Austria or Czech or Germany, it, it's been around. I mean, Austria, for example, it's been around since, like, 1980s, 1990s. 
um, is when the first clubs were established. And I mean, that's right when they brought over David Burns. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're dating me. Okay. <laughs> Shit. But no, I think you'd be a great fit for a club that's looking 100%. for a grounded head coach, you know, with that background, with that professional experience, someone who's down to earth, who can have that patience with some of those local guys, but with also the, also the knowledge to, you know, help them do what they want to do, which is develop the game and, you know, reach that next level. And, you know, whether it's Major League Baseball or the German Bundesliga or the Czech Extraliga or the Italian League or Dutch Hoofdklasse, there's a lot of opportunities around the world with a lot of teams that could use a coach with your experience and your mindset. So I think, I think, that, I think that could be a good fit. It could be in the cards in the future. Yeah, we'll see, man. I appreciate the the kind words. Um, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. 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 So Scott, we've done this a couple times with some some other people. We have a what we, what we call like the, a rapid fire to stand because I got music questions. I got you know, but they just take forever, you know, to go through all of them. So like it's like a one word or one quick quick answer kind of thing, and then <laughs> we'll call it a day. And then when we stop recording, we'll talk real quick about. A couple other things. So, Jimmy, do you want to alternate like we've done in the past? Sure, I'll start off. This is the question that I wrote. What was your favorite stadium to play in, and why was it Oakland? Uh, I loved it because it had a lot of foul ground territory. The, it gets really damp at night, and the ball doesn't travel. And uh, the left-handed hitters they had were old when I had to face them. Harold Bain and Steve. Yeah, so they were, they were easy to get the ball by. Oh, so Oakland was actually – yeah, it actually is a really good place to pitch in. But please go for it. That's why you said I was in Oakland. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, hardest to strike out? Uh, Louis Polonia. Best fans? St. Louis. Um, best heckle you received and where? That's a tough one. Probably Yankee Stadium in the bullpen, some drunk out in right field, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh what was the so back to the music what was the biggest gig that you played at we played a gig in bologna called independence days once i think it was about thirty thousand. shit festival yeah wow uh you personally most influential influential group music most influential music group i yeah. got more than but uh, I, I'd probably say like a band from DC called Minor Threat or uh, or the Descendants from LA area. Nice, melodic, melodic band, yeah. All right, band that you most enjoyed opening for? Lagwagon. <laughs> Lagwagon. The Europeans are gonna love that. Um, that's what we're, I never heard of Lagwagon until I moved here, and I think it was Dicey or one of those guys are like wearing a Lagwagon. I'm I'm like, what's a Lagwagon? <laughs> so um band you oh you, you just asked that one uh, yeah. favorite city festivals to play favorite city uh, festivals slovenia punk rock holiday nice hell yeah check out i saved this jimmy just for this occasion there you go yeah <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> That was from Backstage VIP Fridge, baby, right there. <laughs> I'm so mad that I couldn't be there for that. Like, Jimmy I had just was my number in one. from New York. And I, yeah, he was. I, I invited Jimmy. He didn't come. So next I, time, next, next year. Yeah. 
All right. So, Scott, you're 18 again, and you have to choose one and leave one. Baseball or music? I'm going to choose baseball. Yeah. All right. Last one. Which best describes Scott Radinsky? Not that we can put you in just this one of these categories. Band geek, skater, punk, or jock? Uh, probably a punk. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a stereotypical of punk rock. You know, that whole fuck the world, you know, anti this, anti that. That's probably more my thing, so... I'm I'm uh I haven't conformed to society quite yet, or not fully at least. No, man, this has been great. So thank you very much for this interview. We can go on for hours. Um, maybe we'll get you back another day. Um, and, some, and talk about your European coaching experience next time, hopefully. Yeah, I, I hope. Yeah, Scott, it was a pleasure to meet you. Finally, uh, it was a lot of fun getting to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better and get some insight into your career. Um. And I think a lot of our listeners will really enjoy your story. It was nice meeting you, Jimmy. Uh, you keep up the good work, man. You're doing a good thing. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Scott's a legend. Great storyteller. It was so fun to sit there and listen to his MLB stories. And really inside, I was dying to just talk about his band as well. Just the lifestyle of being a, a, in a rock band and on tour and touring Europe. I witnessed them play at Punk Rock Holiday in Slovenia, and that was amazing. Go on YouTube and search Poli Punk Rock Holiday, and a couple of videos I made will pop up, and it was just such a cool experience. Thanks again, Scott, for the interview. And hope to get you back on here again one day, buddy. If anyone listening is interested in taking their career overseas, go to our website, baseballjobsoverseas.com. Right there, you'll find a feedback form. You can fill it out, and we'll get back to you and answer any questions you have and let you know what your chances are and in which leagues, which countries. Hop on a phone call with you. That's the route to go if you're looking to take your career overseas, whether it's uh, as a coach or a player. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and may the baseball gods be with you.